Okay, good morning. Today's daf is daf Chof Dalet. Um, we're going to go from the last line of Chof Gimel Amud Beis 23b. Um, the Gemara yesterday brought a machlokes Rabbi Meir Rabbanon regarding um, if someone, if it, well, there were three opinions what the machlokes was, but very simply, there's a case um, can a slave own money independently of its master? Rabbi Meir said it cannot, and the Rabbanon came along and said that a slave can. We had three ways exactly to learn that machloikas. I think let's just focus on the last one because that's where our Gomorrah seems to be, today's Gomorrah that we're going to start with seems to be built on that. So that was Rebbe Lez's opinion. He says that obviously the general rule and the standard rule and any transfer of money to an Eved would Mashekona Eved, Konarabo, whatever the slave acquires, the master acquires. He's just an extension of his master. Um, however, if what happens if a person says to the slave, here's money for you to go free? There, contrary to still, he puts it in the slave's hand, or the slave to have, well then it becomes the master's and the slave doesn't go free. Whereas Rabbanon hold, says no, in this case, it does, uh, um, the, the slave requires that money to use to go free. And I think part of the explanation, as I said, I wasn't 100% clear yesterday, but part of the explanation is that just as it's given to the slave to go free, when that money goes automatically to the master, it's still money given to the master to set the slave free. So therefore, um, in that case, almost a slave can have something independent, own something independent of its masters. Now, what's the Gemara is going to raise a contradiction because we've basically said that, um, well, yeah, according to Rebbe Meir, a slave, and it's the same halacha with a woman, not because she's a, his property, but because Midrabonon, whatever the woman acquires, goes financially. What the woman has goes to the husband because of his responsibilities and liabilities towards her. So anything she earns, so it works the same that anything she acquires or gets automatically goes to her husband. So that's what. So here, Rebbe Meir seems to. Uh, Rebbe Meir says very clearly that a woman cannot own anything independent of her husband. And now we're going to go and bring from Master Shani that a woman can own something independent of her husband. And that's that's the contradiction. What does Rebbe Meir? Really hold, or how are we going to explain this contradiction? Um, just uh, just one halach in Master Shani. So just remember, Master Shani is in the. Let me just get the years right. First, second, fourth, and fifth year, the the farmer separates 10% of his produce, and he has to take it up to eat in Yerushalayim. If he's not going to be able to get his produce to Yerushalayim, I guess before it rots or something, before it. Uh, starts to turn bad, or it's just too much for him to take up to Jerusalem, he's allowed to redeem it onto money, and he can take that money and go spend it in Jerusalem, again specifically in fruit, uh, on food, I don't want to go into all the details what he is and isn't allowed to spend it on, but that's what. Now when he redeems it, this is where our, our focus is. When a person redeems their own maser, they have, the Torah says they have to add on a fit. So if I have maser shiny produce, morning that I want to take up to Yerushalayim, I have to add on a fifth of its value. If I'm redeeming your master, Shani, then I don't have to add on the fifth. So where the proof is going to come out, if you have a woman redeeming her husband's master, Shani, 
How do we view it? So let's go into the Gemara, so last line of Chav Kimmel Amit Beis. Verami de Rebbe Meir, de Rebbe Meir. There seems to be a contradiction between two teachings of Rebbe Meir. Verami de Rabbanan al Rabbanan, and a contradiction between the two teachings of the Rabbanan. The Tanya, as we learned in the Brisa, Ein isha poide maser sheni below chomesh. A woman cannot redeem maser sheni without a fifth, without adding on a fifth. Rebbe Shimon ben Elazar, Oimer Mishum Rebbe Meir. No, when a woman is redeeming the Maeser Shaini, she redeems it without adding on a fifth. So we have a Matloikes, Tanakam and Rabbi Shimon, uh, Rabbi in the name of Rabbi Meir. That's the important point for us. It's in the name of Rabbi Meir. And the one says a woman has to add on a fifth, and the other opinion says that a woman does not have to add on a fifth. Now, hey, Chidavi, what's the case? Let's say she's using her husband's money and she's redeeming the husband's produce, well then, she's just acting as her husband's agent. So obviously she should have to add on a fifth. Why would Rabbi Meir, in this case, say she doesn't have to add on a fifth? So let's say she's using her own money and she's redeeming her husband's grain. says, the, the, husband, the Torah says it's the man who has to redeem the master and add on a fifth, but not the woman. Rashi explains not the woman means not a woman redeeming her husband. Okay, not the normal usage of the word man and not woman, but that's how Rashi learns and will uh, obviously he has good grounds because otherwise the Gemara is quite hard to learn. But again, so what's he saying? So we, we're talking about the wife using her money to redeem the husband's master shiny, well, the Torah tells us that she doesn't have to add on a fifth. Ish. An ish has to add on a fifth, but not a woman redeeming her husband's. So why would the Tanakama in that case say that the woman has to um, add on a fifth? So whichever way we try and look at this case, it's very difficult because um, one of the opinions don't fit. Yeah. Can I just try and get in my head here? So when you, you redeem it, you add on a fifth. If you're redeeming your own master, you add on a fifth. A woman doesn't have to add on a fifth. No, we're saying a woman redeeming her husband's doesn't does doesn't, not have I to mean, add on a fifth. She's adding her, her husband's, but if she's redeeming for this, someone else, she does add on. No, no, no. If you're redeeming for someone else, you never add on a fifth. It's only your own. Yeah. So do we view the woman as separate or to her husband? So according to this drosha, yes, a woman a woman is separate to her husband. She does not have to add on a fifth when redeeming her husband's produce. She's separate, and that's and my focus is whether she's part of her husband or not part of her husband. Um, at the, well, we we want to say no. The Torah says she's not part of her husband. Right. But then it's difficult because why would the Tanakama say that? Uh, sorry, why would the Rebbe Meir say she has to add on? Um, sorry, why would the Tanakama say she has to add on a fifth? And if you want to, and then according to Rebbe Meir, if you learn that it's Rebbe Meir makes sense, she doesn't have to add on a fifth. However, if you learn, so, but again, the Tanakama doesn't, so that can't be the explanation. And the first way we suggested was that she uses her money, his money to redeem his grain while she's acting as a shliach. Why would Rebbe Meir say she doesn't add a fifth? So those are the two. That's why we, so Elalab. 
So what about? Oh, interesting. Just to continue, so just to focus on this, the drosh in the pasuk. I'll read the pasuk. It says, If a man is redeeming his own master, he must add on a fifth. So whatever its value is, plus a fifth. Um, now, why does it word, use the word ish? So Rashi learns it uses the word ish to say a man and not a wife redeeming her husbands. Now, that's, that's quite an interesting way of reading the Pasuk. You would never have said that ish. But according to Rashi, let's say a woman, she's not married, she has her own farm, and she's redeeming her master Shani. Does she add a fifth or not? According to this man, because this is an ish. So she would, because how did Rashi explain it? Yeah. Ish and not a woman redeeming her husbands. That's what, that's the, that's according to Rashi, it would. So, Elalav ki it must be this sort of case. Where someone else gave her money, a money, on condition that you redeem the master. So you have Ruvain giving this woman money, to use to redeem her husband's master. Now, do we say here, what a woman acquires, her husband acquires. So this money automatically goes to her husband, and it's for all intents and purposes, she's using her husband's master. Then she would have to add a fifth, and that's the Tanakama. Or do we say, no, what this money is given to the woman to redeem master, it doesn't automatically become the husband's, and therefore it remains all hers, and she would not have to add a homage. That's really maya. And that's the contradiction. It says, But didn't we learn the opposite? In the previous sukkah, we learned that Rebbe Maya was the one who said that if someone makes this condition, this is yours on condition, you use it to, this is here, slave, or this is your money to free yourself. Rebbe Maya says, it doesn't become the slaves to free him. It goes straight to the master. Whereas, and here Rebbe Meir is saying, no, when someone says to the woman, here's money for you to redeem master, Rebbe Meir holds it remains her money and she can redeem the master without adding a fifth. And the Rabbanon were also the opposite. So we have a contradiction between Rebbe Meir's opinion and in the Rabbanon's opinion. So, Omar Abai, Abai says, Apoch, switch the second price. I say that it's the first opinion is actually Rabbi Meir, and the second opinion is the Rabbonin, and then it lines up perfectly with the previous piece. Rava Omar Rava says, No. Don't switch them around. And this price is a different case because it's a case where the Master came, where she inherited the Master. I, her father, had Master. She inherited the Maser. Now, what happens with property <coughs> that a woman inherits while she's married? No. It becomes what we call Nixay Meluk. So, obviously, if it's land or anything, it remains hers, and the husband gets the right to use it. If it's something like grain, which you can't just... Then they'll sell it, and you, then the husband gets to sell it, but the, the money's used to buy land, proper, uh, actual, a real property, and that, and then obviously the payers the husband gets. So that's what happens when a woman inherits property, it becomes, you make it into Nisei Malud. 
uh, that she retains ownership of the kuf, her husband gets the right to use it. So this woman inherited grain. It says, the and therefore the husband doesn't acquire it. Verabon in the time with Omru, and Rabbonin follow their reason, to Omri Mamon Hedjotu. It belongs to the person. But Kani Le Baal and the husband does acquire the grain. Therefore she's actually acting on behalf of the husband. So what do we see? Um, yeah, just to read it in Rashi, says a little bit clearer. So, Rabbi Meir, let Hamei to Amar lechamen. Rabbi Meir will see later on the Perik Beis. Maser Mamon Kavahu. Maser Shani we actually view as belonging to Hashem. Achiloso Mishulchon Kavuahu. And this that you're allowed to eat Maser is basically Hashem giving you the right to eat it. Hilkach Eino Kashar Nechosim lemiknei Bal bemiknosod. That the husband, uh, sorry, the mikne, it's not the same as other property, but the tikkun rabbon and peris labal that the husband, that the rabbis instituted that the husband gets the peris. Yilkach loy zochipot, therefore the husband has no rights in it. Vachi porkolei bezuzei debal, and when she is using her husband's money to redeem it, Lavni Masrohu, she's not using her, she's not redeeming her husband's master. Does this say Dakhad Master Dakhad? The money belongs to one person, her husband, and the master belongs to another person, I her. So what's the in other words, what Rashi is pointing out is that and maybe I should have mentioned this first, is how do you view Master Shane? It has restrictions on it that would make you think it's similar to a korban. You can only eat it in Yerushalayim, there's only certain things you can use the money for, there are all restrictions on it, um, similar to a korban. So do we say it's like a korban that belongs to Hashem, or do we say it's like a regular produce just with certain restrictions? And we see, and again we see both, because on the other hand a regular person can eat it and he just has to take it up to your shalim and eat there, it can be redeemed and you can spend it on any food or korbanus, you don't have to spend it on uh, only korbanos or something like that. Another point is uh, it belongs to the owner. Not not just anyone can come in. Obviously the owner can invite you to eat master with him. But not just anyone can take it. It's not Hashem. It's, and we see, sorry, well, let's put it like this. We see that it can be inherited. So so it has a, a little bit of a dual nature, how you view master. Rabbi Meir says it's considered eating from Hashem's table. It belongs to Hashem. And therefore, once Rabbi Meir says it belongs to Hashem, he is also saying that it's the Rabbonin hold that when she inherits it, there's a Takana Rabbonin that whatever a woman inherits is ch- t- turned into Nisai Maluk. I don't say this about Maser because Maser is not really hers. So the rabbis didn't institute that the husband inherits it. Therefore, the grain that she inherits, which is Maser, remains hers to this degree but the money she's using to redeem it is her husband and that very well explains why Rabbi Meir holds by this, in this case that the woman doesn't add a fifth because it's well Hashem or the woman's master and the husband's money um, whereas the Rabbonin holds we treat master as owned by the person whose master it is. 
So when she inherits the Maser, it's hers, which means when she inherits it, it becomes Nisei Meluk, so basically it becomes the husband's grain. And therefore, when she's redeeming it, she's using her husband's money to redeem her husband's grain. And therefore, she would have to add on a fifth, and that is what the Matloikes is based on. Okay, so that's, uh, that, that was all brought in, remember, because we were discussing how can a slave go free using money? Can he ever be given the money to set himself free? This principle of Mashakona Ebed Kona Rabo, Mashakona Isha Kona Pala, whatever the slave acquires automatically becomes his master's. So how do you give him money that he then uses to free himself? According to Rebbe you can't, and according to the Chacham, you can. We had three explanations of how to understand the Machlokas, but let's carry on. We're now going to go on to another way that a slave goes free. Remember, the mission was discussing how many, how does the way the slave go free, either through a star or through someone paying for his freedom. We discussed, we had a Machlokas, probably a three-way Machlokas of who's receiving the star, who's uh, receiving the mammon, but now we're going on to another way. It says, A slave goes free through losing his tooth or his eye, or the tips of any of his organs or limbs, that do not grow back. Now, let me just read the... Oh, not here. So... So the, the Pesach tells us that if the master knocks out his slave's eye, or knocks out his slave's tooth, since they won't grow back, the slave goes free. So he says, Makes a lot of sense that you say that the slave can go free with his tooth or eye being knocked out, because that's written in the Chumash. But the Rosha Avorim, the other limbs, where do you see that the slave should go free? The master accidentally cuts his finger off. So where do we see that the slave should go free? So he says, Ma. So he says, it's basically a, what we would call a mehat sad. It's a precedent. The Torah doesn't have to give us every single example. It just gives us an example, and we use that as a precedent. So he says, Ma shame the eye and mumin Just a shine and the eye and eye are visible. Tooth and eye are visible. And they don't regenerate. I've called mumin shabakulu So to any visible blemish uh, that is not um, um, that is not um, <coughs> so, so so to any organ that is visible and will not regenerate, will not grow back, the slave will go free. But why don't we say uh, the tooth and the eye are two psukim, two points, coming to teach the same halacha. And when you have two points, two psukim, two things teaching us the same halacha, you don't learn from them. The logic of this makes a lot of sense. If the Torah gives me one example, for example, it says a slave goes free when his tooth is knocked out, it makes a lot of sense to say, okay, that's a precedent. Anything similar to his tooth being knocked out would go free. But when the Torah comes along and tells me two, then it must be specific because it could have just relied on the, the one. So he says, so, so there's no tricha. No, we need both Shane and I. They're each teaching a different aspect and therefore 
you can't say that they both come in to teach the same point. Once they each teach in a different aspect, well, then we'll use them as our, both of them as our precedences. Shush, why do we need both of them? Because of Rachmana Shein, if it would have only taught Shein, Havamina, Afilu Shein, the Chalav, you might have thought even a milk tooth, which does kind of regrow. If a little, if the young slave gets his, uh, tooth knocked out, which will regrow, you would have thought that the slave does go free, and you would have learned from that from even the injury that the slave will recover from, he can go free. Therefore, Kosav Rachmana Ayin, therefore the slave mentions, the, the Torah mentions tooth, uh, Rachmana Ayin, if it only mentioned maybe that eye, he goes free if his eye is knocked out because he's created, he's born with his eyes. Of course, and that would so too the slave would only go free if he loses an organ that he started with. Abel Shane law. But a toothy would not. Because a toothy only develops a few months or year, a few months after he's already created, after he's already born. So Tricha, therefore, we need both of them. So that since they're each independent, the Shane's highlighting um, eyes highlighting at something that does not grow back. So Ainachinami, if a master would knock out his slave's milk tooth. That he would go free, and uh, and an eye teaches us that it's that it's sorry, and and shame the tooth points out highlights that it's anything that will not grow back, even if it only grew after the slaves um, was already born. I'm trying to think, are there any other examples of uh, of parts of a body that grow after the child's born? I also found it interesting that the Gemara also calls it a shame de chalab a muktu. I mean, that's what we call it. I just wouldn't have expected it to have that. Yeah. I don't know. Um, yeah. Just. Okay. So, where we're holding at the moment is we have shame va'ayin as a precedent that any similar such organs that the master severs, knocks off, blinds, etc., of the slave. Um, the slave goes free. We're going to come back. Yeah. So, so that's what I mean. As I mentioned yesterday, I think the Torah is slowly trying and um, getting us to think. Oh wait, it's not just property. It's a person. So Einachinami, if you were part of that society, the idea of setting your slave free because you injured him. It's totally absurd. It's like saying, oh, you accidentally tripped over your dog and, uh, I don't know, broke his foot. You have to let your dog run free. That's, that's how they would have viewed it. The Torah is telling us, no, we're not dealing with animals here. We're dealing with people. So it's not simply property. Yeah, that's, that, that's what I kind of wanted to... Uh, the, the, I, I don't know if you were with us when I highlighted that. As I said, I think it's Rabbi Sachs. I'm trying to think where I read it, but I think it's Rabbi Sachs. And basically, the Torah was... Showing them, so wait, start, start thinking about it differently. Yeah, we're going to let you have your slave and let you treat it as your property in many halachas. But I want you to start thinking differently about it. Realize that you're not, it's a, it's a human. You knock out a tooth, you have to set it free. It's not like your, your cow and your sheep and your pet dog. And you, uh, someone, your animal murders a slave, you have to pay the master, not like damages, not like if you're, when your short mud gores his ox, you just pay the value of the ox. There's no, don't think of it like that. It's a person. So you have to pay Shloshim Shal Ebed. If you kill a slave, I think if I remember correctly, you can be put to death. 
So uh, the Torah is like, uh, what's it, nudging you in the right direction of how to start thinking about this differently. Remember, we did see, just one second, we saw in the Rambam. I mean, that's not a new point. What I'm saying that you have to treat a slave differently to the rest of your property. It's not a new point that only in, since they stopped uh, slavery in America, they stopped this. The Rambam has, we, we brought this in Gittin when we were discussing a slave. But the Rambam at the end of his halachas with this, uh, I don't think it was right at the end. I've been parent of I don't remember exactly. I can look it up if anyone wants to see it inside. But the Rambam there said, Yeah, we see, Minadin, your slave's your property. Therefore, you can tell him, I'm not providing you with food, make a plan. And we said, Okay, that halach is only where he does kind of have a viable option, but you can kind of make his life a real misery by not providing him food and saying, In your in your extra hours, go make a plan. And he's going to end up being starving and it's going to be difficult. And, you know, who's going to want to give that tzedakah to a slave? Um, so you're allowed to do that. But the Rambam comes along and he says, no, this is not how you should treat him. You should treat him with uh, respect and dignity. He's a person. So, uh, so it's not a new thing. It's not brand new. This, that, that I'm saying that you should treat a slave differently to the rest of your property. It's already from the Rambam. But that would be, uh, again, this garments. Yes, you're allowed to have a slave, and in many halachas, he is your property. But don't think he's just uh, just another bicycle, just another car, just another animal that you own. Yes? I would never say there's a big difference between an eye and a tooth, but when you lose an eye, it's serious. You lose a tooth, then say a back tooth, or even a front or a side tooth. Often people are looking at my age, and I'm missing one or two anyway. Uh, okay, now they've got implants, but they didn't have implants 10 years ago. Yeah. So, so look, I mean, it does affect his eating. It does. Let's wait a bit further down the page. Because as we'll see, it's even if you ruin it's really his eating. Yeah. It's nothing really, it's nothing, nothing exciting when you lose a tooth. It's, it's, it's not, not. People who lost a finger carry a living. It's a woman, so... Yeah. It's a woman, but an eye is uh, different. Yeah. And we're going to see, yeah, also it's just important to note, we're going to see it's not just necessarily losing the eye, even if he damages the eye that he goes blind or goes deaf, not that he cuts, obviously cutting off the ears one thing, but if he, but but anything, yeah, okay, okay, but either way, a slave goes free if you knock this tooth out. If it's a serious injury or if it's a minor injury, you still did an injury to a human being. That's where, you know, that's what I wanted to add on to you, that it's a yeah. Um, the Tana, yeah. Just interesting, Tosus asked, why doesn't our Tana teach this? Our Mishnah said, how does a slave go free with a star or with money? Why doesn't it teach or if it's tooth or eye is knocked out? So the Gemara answers, Mishum to suffer the Tzari Ket because the Al Tana hold that he still needs a Get Shikhrur. Even once his tooth or eye has been knocked out, he still needs a Get Shikhrur. So he's free, I guess, financially, but if he now wants to go marry a regular Jewess, he's going to have to get a Shtar Shichrur. So anyway, the master's going to have to give him a Shtar Shichrur. And because of that, he didn't teach it in our Mishnah, which are ways he goes free without a Shtar Shichrur. Okay, but that's interesting. We'll come back more to that just a bit further down the Amud. Let's carry on. So he says, Va'ema. Why don't we say, Ki Ake Klau? When he strikes his slave is the clow, shame the eye in prat, and he knocks out his tooth or his eye is a prat. Klalo prat, ain't bichlal elamashiv a prat. If you have a klal and a prat, 
you only learn out the prat, shame by in mediachrini law. If you have a general principle eye when you injure your slave, and then it specifies eye by knocking out his tooth or eye, you leave that's a klalu prat and it's just the prat. So only tooth or eye. So maybe you've learned it all wrong. Maybe it's not including other limbs. It says, no, lechovshi yeshalchenu, for free you shall send him out. I chazer v'klal, that's generally a klal. I, when you injure your slave, you send him out. That's a klal. So now we have a klal proto klal. Yatodon elokaena prat. You learn things that are similar to the prat. Ma prat. So what's the common denominator of tooth and eye? Ma prat mafurej mum sheba godu v'ainu chazrin. Just as the prat is things that are revealed and do not regenerate. I've called mum sheba godu v'ainu chazrin. So to all other organs or limbs that are revealed and do not regenerate. Um, but wait, maybe part of the, one of the factors of the Prat is that it is a mum that's revealed and it can no longer function. Once your eyes blinded, you, it no longer functions. Once your tooth knocked out, you can no longer chew with that tooth or bite with that tooth. It, it can no longer function. But he says, <laughs> If someone uh, grabs, pulls at their slave's beard and he detaches part of his jawbone, <laughs> the slave goes free. Now, the Havamin I found quite difficult. Basically, with a little bit of pain and struggling, the slave can still chew. So we see that it's a mum that you'll notice, his bones being dislocated, but since it can still work, um, he goes free. So sorry, so but it can still work, so maybe he shouldn't go free. So he says, No, by the fact that the apostle phrases it as for free he shall be sent. That's a ribui. I don't learn it as klal prat to klal. Learn it as ribui mio to ribui. Remember the other day we saw what's the difference? A klal prat to klal, you basically take the... It's very limiting. You take the prat and you say only things that are similar to the prat, that meet the same common denominators. However, with the ribui mio to ribui, you basically include everything except the least similar thing. So there's only one, basically one thing you're going to exclude. So it says, Well, if you're telling me we're learning this drosh as a riboy, well then even if you uh, cause his hand to wither, and but it will regrow, I don't know, he hits his hand in a certain way that it's now damaged, but it will, it will heal. Nami, that the slave should also go free. Because again, we're including all cases the slave goes free except for one with an injury. But why did the Bryce teach that if you strike your evidence on his hand and it withers and but it will re- heal, the slave does not go free? So how can you explain to me that it's a when you don't allow the slave to go free with an injury, with an injury that will heal. No, because that's what Shane and I are coming to teach. Thank you.
So so again, so that's what he's saying. The ribu in to shame for ayin that's specifically what shame for ayin coming to teach that it has to be an injury that doesn't regenerate. Okay, so in all other cases, any injury that is done to a slave, the slave goes free, but that it has to be an injury that won't uh, heal. That's the halach. That's when the slave goes free. So what does that mean? You strike a guy and you cut his hand. It's a big gash. Yeah, so that's wrong. okay because that's going to heal. Yeah, so the slave, your slave won't go free. So it's two, it's two forms out. That's a different story altogether. Yeah, then he would go free. It's almost like valuing him. Like if you say, you buy a slave and only buy a not valuing him. It's not, it's not valuing him. Okay. <laughs> um, in the kitchen. Okay, next point. With all of them, the slave goes free, and the slave needs a get shikhur. So any injury that qualifies to set the slave free, he still needs a get shikhur. says he does not need a a, 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 a get shikhru. Rabbi Lezer Oimer, Rabbi Lozer, I'm not sure, says, sorry, he does need. Rabbi Tarfon Oimer, I know, sorry, Rabbi Akiva Oimer, sorry, Rabbi Tarfon says he does not need, and Rabbi Akiva says he does need a get shikhru. says, now, Hamachrim, Livnei Chachomim, those who are deciding the halachas before the sages, I guess, the expert poskim, that's how I imagine what he's saying, Oimer, Nirei Divrei Rabbi Tarfon Bashain, it seems that Rabbi Tarfon is correct, Bashain for Ayin. I when it's an eye and a tooth, the slave does not need a get shikhru. Shatar is after lot because the Torah gives it to him. But Divrei Rabbi Akiva, and I think Rabbi Akiva makes sense. Bashar Evorim with the other limbs. Why hold the Konas Chachamim who because it's a rabbinic penalty? Go ask, what do you mean? Konas who? Kroy Kodoshinim. What do you mean it's a rabbinic penalty that if you cut off your slave's finger he goes free? We made a drosha. Either, uh, either a binyan alf or a, or a ribuy mir to ribuy, but either way, the slave goes free from a drosha. What do you mean it's a rabbinic penalty? So he says, no, elahoyalu midrash chachamim, what it means is, since it's through a drosha from the chachamim. Right, so where are we holding at the moment? I want to come back to this point soon, but I'd like to get a bit, go a bit further before we do analyze it. We're saying that, again, Rabbi Tarifun comes along as a blanket rule and says, Granted, the slave's going free because he's had his eye knocked out or because he's had his finger cut off, whatever the case is, he needs a get shikhru. Financially, he's liberated, but he, too, he needs a get shikhru to take away his status as a slave. Rabbi Akiva comes along and says, no, the Torah has freed him. That's he's free. He doesn't need a get shikhru. Comes along... Um, Sorry, other way around. Rabbi Tarfun says he does not need the get shikhru, and Rabbi Akiva says he does need it. The machriyim in the halacha come along and say no. The ones that are clear in the Torah, he goes free without the get shikhru. The ones that are through a drosha, he still needs a get shikhru. We'll come back to that point. But says my time at Rabbi Shimon. So what's the source for Rabbi Shimon that he needs a get shechur? He learns from a woman. Because what does it say here? Um, 
If a man strikes his slave or his maidservant in the eye and destroys it, he shall be sent out free in place of his eye. Um, so, but that for shilchah, shilchah connects it to a woman, just as a woman needs a star, so to here he needs a star. Ah, oh, Rebbe Meir, then where, why does Rebbe Meir say? It says, Ikosav chofshi levasov kedomart. If it would have said chofshi at the end, that would have made sense. If it would have said, Yishalchenu lechofshi, you shall send him, I with the document, free. Then it would be, it says, Hashta the kosav but now that it says you sh- for free you shall send him he goes free from the outset I it's putting the emphasis on setting him free because you know, he goes free and then you have to let him go you have to send him away if he goes free the slave is rendered free initially so now that he's free, send him away. But we're saying that he's already free. Okay. So, so, yeah. Now I just want to go back to this. is a fascinating point. We're saying that there's a different halacha because something's mentioned explicitly in the Pasuk and a different halacha because it's through a drosha. Don't we always consider droshas the orisa? So why all of a sudden are we making it different? So let's just look at the top toysvahs. Uh, an amazing point. For, uh, it's novel in how we've understood the Gomorrah, but it makes a lot of sense because of this. Peirush, the explanation is, Mishum hachi I'm sorry, get The explanation is that through all other things, for if he loses any other organ, he would go free with the get shikruv. Im toymah mabakach, hol umidrash chachomimu v'aloi, kama gufei torah tluyin, says what difference does it make that it's through a drosha there are many fundamentals that we halachas that we only know through a drosha so what all of a sudden you're going to say a drosha is weak no therefore it appears to Rabbeinu Tam that this get that we require is only rabbinic Someone might, he might bump into his slave in the master place and say, you're my slave. Because not everyone knows the drosha. Therefore, is not known to the world. Therefore, we say he has to have a get shikhrul. So what's the Rabbi Natami saying? No, you're right. Whether it's, whether it's mentioned explicitly or learned out from a drosha, it's 100% the same strength and you would have to be careful with both of them. The novelty here is that not everyone knows the droshas and therefore we have to specify it. Okay, so comes the, so that's how Rabbi Natami learns and that makes a lot of sense with the standard understanding of droshas. But it's fascinating to see that it does on some... So, so Rabbi Natami makes a lot of sense and that's how many learn. There are other Ishoinim who learn slightly differently and we do find allusions to this that there is a difference between halacha that's clear in the possible or something learned out from a drosha. Very hard to understand why it shouldn't because we build our oral Torah and uh, on the... Uh, on the droshas, to the degree that almost if you're not going to take a drosha, you basically turn into one of the kairats.
Okay, but that's, I mean, that's not learned out from a drosha. That's, uh, that's just saying, Moshe told us on Hashina, this is what it means. Um, the Rosh, the, I mean, the Rivat touches on it in this Tosos, but the Tosos Harosh is a little bit um, easier. Let me just find it quickly. Um, Where is it? Um, Oh yeah, Holy Midrash says Taima Kol Torah Nami Midrash Chachomim. Who isn't basically the whole Torah Joshes of the Chachomim. So he brings Rabbeinu Tam's explanation. Perish Rabbeinu Tam. The Ein Mufurish Behedje Ve'Ena Oylam Bekim BeMidrash Chachomim. No, since it's not explicit, not everyone knows the Chachomim. Takinu Sheyitov Loget Shichru. They required the Rabbanon required instituted that he must get a Get Shichru. Shema Yim Tzeino B'Shuk V'Yomer LaAviato. In case he bumps into his master place and he says, "You're my slave." And again, a whole lot of people are going to believe him. Because a whole lot of people will believe him because no one knows that he goes free because his finger was cut off. Says Veloina here Perusha. I don't think this is correct. It sounds like Rabbi Kiva and Rabbi Tarfon were arguing in Doraisa. I Rabbi Akiva and Rabbi Tarfon argued across the board. Rabbi Akiva and Rabbi Tarfon didn't make this distinction of is it shaved for iron or is it another organ. So and it appears that this is not a hachro to strengthen the words of Rabbi Akiva. It's a, actually a third opinion. Therefore, it appears to, that we can explain that since it's a drosha from the chachamim, the share for him, Where do we learn out all other limbs from? From Lechovshi Yeshalchenu, Kedomrin in the Isle, Ribuyahu, the key Gomrin on Shiluach, Shiluach, Meisha, Dafke Leinian Sharevorim. Therefore, he learns that this Shiluach is specifically by other organs. I, he's saying I, basically, if you, you've got to look at the drosh in two different categories, that's what he means. Okay, and he's also taking the drosh as Doraisa and fundamental, and you can't say it's weaker because it's a drosha. Which is again what Rabbeinu Tam was getting at. You can't say it's weaker because of the Rosha. He's just not happy with Rabbeinu Tam's resolution because then you have a Machloikes, Rabbi Akiva and. Uh, sorry? Then why does Rabbi, Aki, uh, Rabbi Akiva and Rabbi Tarfon argue across the board? So he says the Machriim are actually, what they're learning out is they're splitting the Rosh and do. Shame for Ayin on the Rosh that they go free. But uh, we learn out, where do we learn out other limbs from? Because it's a ribu, ribu to ribu, from the Chavshi That's connected to Shiloh with the Isha. So other organs are connected to that there's a, that you need to get. So he's almost building into the drosha that just for shade and eye he goes free without anything. And for the other organs, you need to get because of the Xerah with Isha. Um, that's the third opinion. Okay, so that's a, that, that's a very interesting discussion. None of them are prepared to say that it's a weaker halacha because it's from a drosha. If you strike him on his eye and he goes blind or in his ear and he goes deaf, the slave goes free. He hits him, I don't know if it's like somewhere else on his face near his eye or um, 
do something near his eye and he can't see. You make a loud bang near his ear and he can't hear, he goes deaf. The slave does not go free through those because those are indirect. The slave only goes free if the master does it directly. You're telling me that making a loud sound is nothing because we said here, you, you, you shoot a gun near someone's ear. It makes a huge bang and makes him go deaf. Telling me he doesn't go, he's, you, it's uh, indirect. So he says, Yo, honey, Rami, Yo, this honey, I'm going to show you where we see that sound does count as doing an action and you should set him and he should go free. Where's that? If a chicken stuck his head in a glass vessel, the top of bar, and he what's it, uh, crowed. Does it know what does a chicken do? Yeah, no, into a glass jar, but he and he made a crow. I don't know, crowed. Okay, crowed. So chicken crows. But top of so he crowed in a vashavru. He pays full damages. Yosef said a different halacha, but same point. If a horse made or a donkey braid, and he broke Kalim in the house, he pays half damage. The one says full damage and the one says half damage because that's based on a machloikes sumchus and the rabbonon of what happens when an animal causes damage in that way. But not because... Uh, but that, that, that's the main point. So, shiny autumn, the kiva, the bardas who eel me boys natch. No, an animal's different. Um, a clee is different because a clee can't help itself, so it gets broken through the sound waves. Whereas a person, he kind of allows himself to be frightened. I couldn't work it out exactly, but this that you react with such startlement that you go deaf when someone uh, pops a balloon nearby your head, that's your own problem. Um, Kedatanya, as we learned in the Brisa, Hamabi says, "Chaveira potmi dina orom chavinina." Shomayim, if someone frightens his friend, he's exempt from dina orom. My based and can't make him pay, but he'll be liable. Midina is Shomayim. Kaitzad, Hazes, Tokab Ozno v'Charshu Potter, also v'Tokab Ozno v'Charsho Chayav. If he shouts in his ear and he makes him deaf, he's exempt. If he grabs his ear and he makes him deaf he's chayv. Again, the one is indirect because he's just shouting nearby his ear. The other one is he's punching him um, in the ear. I think we better leave it here for today and we'll uh, continue tomorrow. A little bit higher up than I was hoping, but I feel like I say that often.